Hey, y'all, thanks for tuning in to the Weird One Podcast. This space, it's a collection of talks ranging anywhere from sermons from our ministry, creative thoughts, breakout sessions at things like Weird One Conference, as well as some inside scoops on leadership. We hope it helps you. If you want to keep up to date with everything Weird One, you can go to weareoneyouth.com or follow us on social at WAO Youth. We hope you're blessed. This extension is paired with the message, the unknown God. And uh, if you watch that, it's going to give you a lot of clarity on the details that I'm going to leave out here, which believe it or not, I'm about to dive in deep, about to give you a lot of details you can't get in that message, but you need them to kind of pair and partner together. I'd suggest go watch that message. It's a link in the description and we're going to dive in where we're going to cover quite a bit of ground. This is going to be a good one here. And, uh, the reason we have to cover a lot, I could have broken it up. But I want to put it all together to show you just Acts 17 as a whole, the three cities that Paul, Silas, and Timothy take territory for Jesus in. They start by going to Thessalonica. It's like right in the beginning. I'm going to read it here in a second. It's the first verse is outlined. Then they go to Berea and then Athens. Thessalonica starts right here, Acts 17, verse 1. Let's read it. We're going to dive in. Let's get it. I'm pumped. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. So right out of the gate, he's establishing that's the first city we're going to. Where there was a Jewish synagogue, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. I want to give you three quick observations here that you can find in just these two verses. Number one, unlike Philippi, there was a synagogue in Thessalonica. Why does that matter? Because if you go to Acts 16 in Philippi, they did not have enough men to make up worship being, I guess, I don't know what you call it, necessary to have a synagogue. It says that they found women that were by the river. They were praying and they were coming together to worship God because there wasn't enough men to even do it. So here, right away, he's like, okay, we back to it. Thessalonica, there's a synagogue. We can start preaching. Number two, uh, it says here that he reasoned with them for three Sabbaths. What does that mean? Paul was only in Thessalonica for three weeks. I mean, that is a quick church plant. I mean, if you think about this idea of any pastor or anybody that go to a city and they plant a church, I mean, it's it's months upon months before you even do like a launch Sunday or whatever you'd say today. He's only there for three weeks preaching and they launched that church. I think it's really important to note that although his time in Thessalonica was really short, If you go to Acts 20, verse 4, Luke makes it clear that there were crucial converts to Christianity that took place in Thessalonica. I'm just going to read you a little bit of it to give you perspective. Look at verse 4. Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica. Now, I know that you don't have the whole context, but it doesn't matter. I'm just listening to these two people, Aristarchus and Secundus. So Aristarchus, you look at him alone, he's mentioned as traveling and doing ministry with Paul in Acts 19, 20, and 27. Why is that so cool? Paul and the crew was only in Thessalonica for three weeks, but they picked up these amazing converts that they went and did ministry with on more than one missionary journey. You see it's listed all the way to Acts 27. That's the second to last chapter of the book of Acts. So it's really amazing to see that in three weeks you can cover a lot of ground for Jesus. The third thing I would just tell you from these first three, uh, two verses as we kind of dive in here is I discussed the phrase, it's the how this uh, starts. It says, when Paul and his companions is how it starts off. I discussed that in the extension chain of events, which you can find in the description as well. And I just want to 
bring a little more clarity, maybe even correct what I said in that extension that hopefully this will help you. I said in that extension something along the lines of Timothy and Luke that they rejoined Paul and Silas in Acts 17. Because if you read Acts 16 when they're in Philippi, remember Paul and Silas, they're imprisoned in that Roman prison there. You can't see Luke and Timothy at all. It's like, where do they go? And then in Acts 17, it says that when Paul and his companions, companions is plural, so that means it wasn't just Paul and Silas, that would have been Paul and his companion, but because it's companions, it had to be at least three of them. I, I think I reference it along the lines of saying Luke and Timothy. But just to really clarify this, when we look at this verse, only Timothy joined them here in Thessalonica. Luke actually stayed in Philippi, and he continued to develop Lydia and the rest of the church there. And again, we know this because in Luke's writing style, when we read this in Acts 17, we know that he's not present, and we know he's still in Philippi doing ministry because look at Acts 17, verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. That's what we see here in verse 1 of Acts 17. They, not we. If, if, it, if Luke was there, he said, we came. He said, they came, meaning when Paul and Silas and Timothy and they're doing ministry, and then Luke gets joins them again. I'll talk about that here in a little bit. When he rejoins them, they would have been like, this is what happened. That's what happened. And Luke's writing it all down, remember? So he writes, this is what they did. He documents it, but he wasn't there. He was still doing ministry in Philippi. Let's talk a little bit more about just what happened in Thessalonica, and then we're going to go city by city here. Thessalonica kind of reminds me a little bit of my own city here in Michigan, Uh Thessalonica was just a tough north country. Here in Michigan, we know the seasons. We know what it's like to see the leaves fall. We know what it's like to get very bitter cold and then the rain in the spring and obviously summertime. Like we, we know the seasons here. We tough people here up in the north, up in Michigan. That is how it was in Thessalonica. So when they come here in Acts 17, before you even read the account here in Acts, you know that it's rough, and they had a hard time in there just based upon what you can read in when Paul writes in the letters to the Thessalonians. He writes First and Second Thessalonians. Look at the first letter, chapter 2, verse 1. Paul shares, he says, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. So he's like, what he's saying here, he's starting off saying, We got the job done, but yikes, is what he's saying. It was some work. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi. He's talking about being imprisoned, right? But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. So he's like, listen, we went through a lot of hard stuff in Philippi, and then we went a bunch, through a bunch of hard stuff with you, but we still preached the gospel despite facing this opposition. What was the strong opposition? What is he referring to in 1 Thessalonians? Well, in Acts 17, when you read this account, when he's there in Thessalonica and the rest of the crew, there was these jealous Jews that as the God-fearing Greeks, and it says, and prominent women, as they're hearing the gospel, they're turning to follow Paul and Silas, which means they're following Jesus, it says, right? As they were doing that, these jealous Jews were rising up and they were out for blood. It says that, they formed a mob, they started a riot, they, and then because they couldn't find Paul and Silas, it says, they actually began to drag now the new converts in the faith. These new Christians that just came to the faith, they're dragging them out of their house. It mentions one of them by name, his name is Jason. They drag him out of the house, they're searching for Paul and Silas, they can't find them. I love how it describes this in the NASB. The NASB is a New American Standard Bible. And that translation, which is a very accurate translation, it says, that when they did not find them, 
they began dragging Jason and some brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men, I love this, who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the degrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Dang straight, there's another king, Jesus. So this is the second time that Paul is being charged with a crime. The first time was in Philippi when Paul and Silas were brought before the magistrates, which I just talked about, and they go to prison. And let me just note this. Acts 16, this was actually a very serious crime because Philippi was a Roman colony, which means their laws were strict based upon Roman law. Thessalonica here, on the other hand, it's a free city of Rome. So it's not going to be the same laws that are going to like hold them down in terms of preaching the gospel. But the Jews are ticked off. So you know what the Jews did? These jealous Jews the Bible talks about? They begin to conjure up a much more general charge. What did they have to say? They said that Paul is supporting a king besides Caesar. Basically saying, listen, like they're... They don't even care about Caesar. Let's come on, let's be honest here. They just stuck under Caesar's rule because of Roman Roman rule. But they're like, hey, listen, they are worshiping another king besides Caesar. We have to worship Caesar. And they, they knew they were only to worship the Lord their God as Jews, but they're now trying to throw this argument. This is the same thing that happens. The Sanhedrin does this. And John 19, they throw the same thing at Jesus. They're like, you know, Jesus is, you know, he's claiming, you know, this same thing that there's another uh, king, whatever. He's a king and it's not Caesar and all this stuff. The same sort of stuff that they're trying to throw down. This is just what the Jews did. So because they couldn't, though, get uh, Paul and Silas to really get a charge to stick, and because they tried to throw even at the new converts, and a charge and get that to stick. They couldn't do it. So you know, this is what they did. Watch this. Verse nine. Tricky little, tricky little guys here. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. I think the ESV actually brings a lot of description to this to help us understand better. It says in the ESV, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So what does that mean? It means very simply that if Paul or the church did anything that the Jews would consider to be causing trouble, Jason would lose his money. (laughs) They set it up so they'd have Jason's money. They're going to hang on to it. And like, listen, he does anything, you ain't getting this money back. We're going to take it. As long as everything's good, you can have your money. And so that's how they put a little bit of pressure on the new church because they could not lock down any sort of accusation or problem with them. I want you to really take note here, though, of the church in Thessalonica, these new believers. Look at their willingness. Look at their sacrifice. Look how Jason and the church, they were willing to stand in the gap for Paul and Silas so the gospel could continue to go forth. I think it's such a beautiful thing. It says that they want to protect them in such a way that they're being dragged out of their homes so that they won't be found. And then it says in verse 10 that as soon as it was night, in the night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. They want to let them get away without being found. And this is the second city now where a church is going to be established in Berea. And I just want to clarify here because I think sometimes it's like, well, is Paul like, is Paul like trying to get out of this? Is he unwilling to take the heat for it? Like Paul got stoned and beat and imprisoned. I mean, he ends his life being beheaded. I mean, the dude was willing to take the heat. It wasn't that at all. I want to really clarify why he was willing to leave the church because he didn't want to. He did not want to leave the church in Thessalonica. 
He wanted to stay and continue to see it built. But he knew and the church knew that this was an attack of Satan. See, Paul knew this so well, he writes back to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and he says in verse 17 and 18, but brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned, wow, look how he says this, orphaned by being separated from you. He's like, oh, this hurts so bad. We did not want to be away from you. Orphaned by being separated from you for a short time in person, not in thought. He's like, we're thinking about you all the time. Out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Like, we wanted to get back to you so bad, we did not want to have to leave you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly, I, Paul, did again and again. He's like, I'm telling you, I'm writing this. You can believe it. I want to get to you. Look at this. But Satan blocked our way. Uh, You can just see that Paul is acutely aware here that Satan was making it difficult for him to return. If you read the book of Acts, you can see it wasn't until his third missionary journey in Acts chapter 20 that he even is able to finally get back to them because Satan was making it very difficult. I'll tell you, Satan will make it difficult for us to continue to bring the gospel of Jesus forth. We have to be aware of this, and we cannot give up. We have to keep pressing and know that there is a there is an open door coming. There is a way that God will make for us to bring the gospel forth, but Satan's going to make it hard. So by verse 10, when we read that, Acts 17, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they make their way to Berea. And when they get to Berea, I'll say, oh boy, it is different than Thessalonica. It's like a breath of fresh air. Look at what it says here, verse 10 to 12. On arriving there, they went in uh, to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than uh, those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And as a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So remember the way that it's described, the, the, the Thessalonican Jews were described as rounding up a bunch of bad characters. If you know where to find bad characters, it's because you have bad character. But now the Berean Jews, what does it describe them as? Not bad character, as having noble character. The NASB says they were noble minded. And and you read this here. It says that with great eagerness, they examined the scriptures. They were a noble minded people with an eager examination. They were eager examiners. They didn't just take the word for it. They had a little healthy skepticism, not in a bad way, but to say, we're going to read the scriptures for ourselves, and we're going to really learn what it says. And as they searched the scriptures, they discovered Jesus. Didn't Jesus say that? Those that they search for me, they look for me, they reach out for me, they're going to find me, he said. So as they searched, they found. They found that Jesus is the Messiah. So they went from just thinking that there's God, Yahweh, that we know, but now God gave his one and only son for us. Did they maybe search like Isaiah chapter 6 for unto us, right? And he shall be called, it says, wonderful counselor. It goes, you know, it continues on. Did did that maybe trigger them? Like, I'm just interested. I remember, what were they reading possibly? But they searched the scriptures. And one of the many believers in Berea that went with Paul on his third missionary journey, I want you to catch, catch this. There was a lot of believers that were made there in Berea. But one of them went with Paul on his third missionary journey, and he's mentioned, like I already read about um, Aristarchus and Secundus in Acts 20, verse 4. He's mentioned there as well. It says, he was accompanied by um, Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea. So this is really sweet, right? He picks up Aristarchus and Secundus, 
from Thessalonica, and then he picks up Sopater from Berea as well. So it's just cool that it's not just people coming to know Jesus, it's people picking up the call to go and minister and share the gospel and see many others come to know Jesus. So many believed, but we have to always see this is how it works, right? So many believed, but Paul doesn't just attract believers. I would like to give it a name here. Paul attracts reverse groupies is what I'll call it. A groupie is like, right, girls, women, whatever. They're going to follow like these bands around, these artists around. They want to see them at every show, try to get their autograph and all this kind of stuff. Like Paul attracted reverse groupies. Look at verse uh, 13. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating, what is it? Agitating, aggravating, ticking off, frustrating the crowds and stirring them up. Wherever Paul went, the Jews would follow and try to reverse everything he had done, reverse groupies. They'd follow where he went, figure out what he was doing, and just do the opposite of that. You, you have any people like that in your life? Anybody you know? They just want to do the opposite of whatever you want. <laughs> they, if you say you want to eat this, they say they want to eat that. Or it could even be worse, obviously. Like it could be like you're making this strong stand for following Jesus and you're making it clear, like of, of how you're going to stand for God. And they just want to make it, put a, a frustrating beat down on it and your workplace, whatever it is. And they just want to bring the opposite. Like this is what's happening here now in Berea. But it's the Jews from the jealous ones from Thessalonica. Now, notice how the documentation of this second city in Berea in Acts 17 closes out. It says in verse 14, the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions. So Paul gave him instructions for uh, Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So you notice here that Luke's still not mentioned. He's still ministering in Philippi. He will not rejoin Paul until his third missionary journey. Luke finally appears, and he does it in a very unique way, because Luke, not any point in the book of Acts, does he name himself as being there. So selfless, he just leaves himself out. But we can tell by the way he wrote it that he was there, remember? So when you read in Acts chapter 20, finally verse 6, he springs up. We haven't seen him now, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19. We don't see him. But Acts 20, he springs up because he finally says, we rather than they. And that's how we know that Luke finally arrived. So notice though, Silas and Timothy, they stay in Berea. They continue to build the church. Then Paul takes off to Athens. And it says that he was escorted, which means some of the new believers in Berea go with him as he makes his way to Athens. And um, by the time you get to verse 15 now, we, what we just read. I want you to really notice how it's described that once Paul gets to Athens, he looks around and what he witnessed was a city that just needed some good news. He witnessed a city that needed to know Jesus. So he immediately is like, uh, Silas, Timothy, ASAP, soon as you can get here, roll up, let's go. You got to get here. We got some work to do. What Luke doesn't record in Acts though is a detail that you can only find in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And let me explain this first. The reason that Luke doesn't include it in uh, uh, doesn't include it in the book of Acts is because in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians that detail's already there. What do you mean? 1st and 2nd Thessalonians was written in 51 AD. 
Luke didn't finish the book of Acts until 63 AD to compile all the details of it. So you have here 12 years later, the book of Acts came out. What does that mean? Paul's letters to the Thessalonian church there were already in circulation for 12 years. Luke did not need to include a detail in the book of Acts that had already been known for 12 years by the church. What's that detail? First Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. So when we could stand it no longer, he's like, we got to go. We thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. And we sent Timothy. Check this. We're going to focus on Timothy who is our brother and co-worker in God's service and spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. Okay, what does this mean? Although Paul originally wanted Timothy with him in Athens, after Timothy arrives, he makes his way, he gets there, Paul is actually like, uh, I actually think you need to go and encourage the church in Thessalonica. We only know that if we read 1 Thessalonians. It's not in Acts. But what he does is as soon as he gets there, he's like, hey, this is good, but I'll be all set. Take off to Thessalonica. You need to encourage and strengthen the church because the first time we were there, those jealous Jews brought some opposition. That church needs to get strengthened. So he sends Timothy, his son in the faith, he sends him there to continue to strengthen the church. I'll tell you, Timothy is logging some missionary journey hours. The dude is traveling. I'd be throwing up with amount, the amount of sea journey that this dude has taken. Because when Paul finally plops and he's in a place, he's sending Timothy out, the young gun, young legs, and he's still going and traveling. He's logging some, some hours on the legs, walking. He's logging some throw-up hours on the sea. I don't know if he's probably used to it. I'd be, I'd be yakking for sure, though. But let, let's look at his journey a little bit here. He's picked up in the Lyconian region of Lystra. He then goes through that um, area, Phrygia, Galatia, and then he goes along the border of Mycenae, then down to Troas, where they picked up Luke in Acts chapter 16, sailed to Samothrace, Neapolis, then to Philippi, which is where then he stayed there maybe for, you know, remember for a little bit with Silas, um, or sorry, with uh, Luke, while Paul and Silas took off then to Thessalonica. He then eventually comes to Thessalonica. Then remember, they're all sent because of the jealous Jews to Berea. They all come to Berea. But then, remember, Paul takes off to Athens. Silas and Timothy, they stay in Berea. But then Paul asks them to come to Athens, so eventually then Timothy comes to Athens. And once Timothy gets there, he's like, uh, actually, could you go back to Thessalonica to encourage that church? I mean, Timothy is doing some travels here. And based upon how Luke documents verses 16 to 34 here in this chapter— Silas and Timothy, they had yet to actually come to Athens. That's our third city now. Paul comes to Athens, and everything that we read, the whole bottom half in Athens, uh, we can really see here that Silas and Timothy, they're not even present. So that means if they're not present, they arrive after this, that there's more that happened there than the Bible documents. If the Bible documented every single thing that happens, it's just... Bibles are thick enough, especially like if you get a good old study, study Bible. Can you imagine trying to study like everything that actually happened? The book of John, John writes, if every single miracle and thing that Jesus did was recorded, it's how like the last verse of the book of John, there would not be enough books in the world to be able to contain it all. So we don't have it all here, which means what we read in Acts 17 when he's in Athens, the rest of it, he's there alone. I'm going to show you how we know that in a second. Uh, Silas and Timothy come later. Then after that, Paul sends Silas to uh, 
back to Thessalonica. So that hasn't even transpired right now in the book of Acts 17. Let me show you a couple verses in Acts 17 that you can look up to show what I'm saying, though. Verse 17 says, so he reasoned. Verse 19, so they took him. Verse 22, Paul then stood. Verse 33, Paul left the council. What do I mean? It's always singular. There's no mention of Paul and Silas or of Timothy or us or they. It's only he, him, and Paul. So that's how we know the rest of 17, Paul is there alone in Athens. When Paul gets in the city, you can see by verse 16 that the heart that he had for the people and what was taking place, it was just burning and on fire for them to know Jesus. Look at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, so he's waiting for uh, Silas and Timothy to come, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. See, Athens was full of these magnificent temples, uh, such as there's the famous one, uh, Parthenon, and then, uh, which, you know, it's, it's there and it's, it's, it's gorgeous. It, it worshiped false gods, so it's not gorgeous in that sense, but as far as a structure and uh, an, ar an architectural standpoint, it is really incredible. And then also in the city, there's a lot of false Im images, such as like ones for Hermes, the mythological son of Zeus. And they're all of the city and he gets there and he sees them and it says he's distressed. He is brokenhearted to see that the people are so deceived that they're going to hell, that they don't know Jesus as the Lord of their life. And this is so convicting, this verse for me, because I just think as Christians in 2023, if we're really honest with ourselves for a second, we have become so calloused to a world that is full of idolatry. There's idolatry all around us and we're not even any more phased by it or moved by it. Think about celebrities and fame and money and possessions, social media culture. Like there's witchcraft and demonic religions such as Islam and Buddhism and ones like that that are worshiping these false gods. And we're like, well, they're, they're Muslim. Rather than being brokenhearted to be like, they need to know who Jesus actually is because the Quran is selling a false a false uh, idea of who Jesus actually is. He is not just a prophet. He's not just a miracle worker. He is the Savior. He is the Son of God. He is the one who was prophesied about and fulfilled it, and he came and he will come again. But we've become callous by it. We've become callous by the sexual perversion in our world, sex slavery and the pornography industry and people's preferences and orientation and agendas in the world where they put up flags and, and, and they change what their pronouns are and all these things. I'm not saying become sickened in the way that we say we hate these people. Become sickened in a way to say we love these people and they're going to hell without Jesus. We've become so calloused, so complacent in 2023. I'm quickened. I'm shook. I'm convicted as I see how Paul sees these idols, and it says that he's greatly distressed. It crushed him to see in Athens their sin and their confusion. And so finally, here's what happened. It was his compassion for the city that it was the thing that not only drove him to preach, and he's, we're going to get there in a second, he comes to this place called Areopagus, but more than that, it launched a worldwide movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So while Paul He's waiting for Silas and Timothy. He's broken over the city. He can't just sit there and twiddle his thumbs. It says that he goes, he speaks in the synagogue, and then day after day, he goes in the marketplace. 
Verse 18, it says that a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. This is so funny. It's like, y'all got so many gods. How would you consider something foreign gods? Like you just are making up a million different gods here to worship. What what do you consider foreign or not? It's like, if it's a new God to you, it's like one more God to worship. But they said they're advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news, the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. I want to give you a little bit of uh, context here. Who's he talking to? Who? is he standing before these philosophers? It says these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Who are they? See, the Epicureans, they were followers of the famous Greek philosopher Epicurus. He's the one who established this idea of materialism, taught that the components of the world, they just were made up by atoms. Like the way we can think as humans, oh, it's just because of atoms. And, you know, the the way our body operates, just because of atoms. Like there's no, like, no more we would call it intelligent design, right? It's just atoms. They believed also that the gods weren't existent, which they're right to some degree. Lowercase gods, yeah, they're not existent. There's one true God, the big G God. But I think something that I'm going to bring apart about here that is really good to lean into is it wasn't that they just thought that the gods weren't existent. It's that they thought the gods were too far removed to matter for humans. And Paul's going to use that a little bit. I'll break it down. The Stoics then that he also spoke to They were established by the philosopher Zeno. He founded the Stoic school of philosophy, and they focused on the importance of reason, believed that the world was divine, and they really taught strong self-sufficiency, courage, duty. Um, They they seem to be more like the stand-up guys, the Stoics, right? Stoics, though, they were pantheists. And so when Paul's having to deal with this idea of foreign gods and idols and all that stuff, They were pantheists, which means that they believed that God and the universe were just all the same rather than separate. Uh, An easy way to say it is like, God is all and all is God. So God, I would tell you, very simple, we know he created a tree, but he's not a tree. That's what they believe though. God is a tree and God is the wind and God is this rock over here and God is the grass and the sky. No, no, God created these things but he exists outside of it so that he can watch over it all. He is not it. He is in control of it. So that's the Stoics. And I think what's just good for us to notice is sometimes Christians can get so pharisaical and overly religious and be like, oh, I just got to avoid people that are sinners. I think we need to know the measure of what we can handle. But here it says that Paul does not shun them and he does not avoid them. Paul spent time with them, and he engaged them in deep discussion, even to the point of debate. Well, we'd call this apologetics, defending the faith. There's a couple other links right there in the description I want you to notice. There's three sermons we preached at our summer camp that are all about apologetics. How do we know that Christianity is the real thing? How do we know Jesus is who he said he was? And how do we know um, that God even exists or is God or the God we worship or those things? We taught those um, earlier this year. I think that they'll help you, but that's essentially what Paul's doing. He's doing apologetics. He's debating. He's defending the, the faith. He's bringing intellectual integrity. That's what he's doing. In verse 18, Paul begins to uh, basically enter this, this argument establishing the good news of the resurrection. And man, this got their attention because it says in verse 19 that then they took him 
and brought him to a meeting of Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? I think when we read this, it kind of, it almost seems like they're just like pleasantly amused or just intrigued. Uh, but I'll tell you, it was a lot more than just simple intrigue. They wanted answers. The word took here, then they took, it comes from the Greek word that means to take possession of or to seize in a violent way. Now, it wasn't that they were being violent in the way that they wanted to like, kill Paul. It's that they were demanding answers. They were shook. What, what are you talking about? We need you to keep talking to us about this. What is this all about? This Jesus, this resurrection, and this aggression uh, that as we unpack the Greek, this word took, it makes sense because when you get to verse 32, Luke describes their the temperament of some of the philosophers. Look at this, verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection, this is at the very end of the chapter, the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Some of them sneered. They were aggressive. They're like, whoa, whoa, resurrection? Took them, brought them to Areopagus, and this is where it all begins. Where did they? Where did the Epicurean uh, and Stoic philosophers bring Paul? Where did this all go down? Where was the resurrection conversation? Everything we're about to get to right here, Athens, chapter seventeen. God is the creator of the universe. I mean, it's a, it's an amazing debate that they have here. Where is it? I want to break down Areopagus. Where this is, what it is. So among the Greeks, legend says that the first trial ever held here because that's one of the things I'll describe in a second that took place was trials at Areopagus. The first trial ever held was against Ares, the Greek god of war. It's said that, you know, according to legend and all stuff, that he murdered Poseidon, the, uh, the son of Areopagus, okay? So Ares is on trial there, and he's condemned, and that happens there. Also, another trial that took place was for the famous philosopher Socrates, Socrates was tried, convicted, put to death because supposedly he was promoting the worship of other uh, foreign gods. If it, if it was Jesus, go uh, Socrates, but I don't, I don't think it was. Just shout out just in case. So at Areopagus, um, which is still there today, by the way, it's this, this, it's this beautiful rocky limestone structure, and you can see so much of their, their architecture and just beautiful like cultural landscapes there. You can go see it there today in Athens. Um, you could see really important temples, such as I mentioned earlier, the, the Parthenon, right? You could see it perfectly from there. It was where also the high court uh, took place there, as I just mentioned, with um, um, Ares or Socrates. But here's what I want you to catch. The name Areopagus is Greek for Arius's hill, Ares hill, Arius's. That's a little weird when there's an S at the end of a word. S apostrophe S no S apostrophe just so it's helpful to you, Arius's hill or just Arius hill. But I don't know what kind of Bible you have. If you read in the NASB as an example, like some translations like that, there's a heading when you get to verse 22. This is NIV, so it's not there. But if you get to an NASB, there's a heading at verse 22 that says "Sermon on Mars Hill." Okay, so if if Areopagus means Ares Hill, why would it say Sermon on Mars Hill? It's because the Roman equivalent of the Greek Ares is Mars. So Areopagus, it also then translates to be Mars's Hill, which is so weird again. But most commonly, it just is broken down. It says Sermon on Mars Hill. So for the Greeks, Ares Hill. For the Romans, 
Mars Hill. So once at uh, Areopagus, Paul starts by commending them. So I want you to catch how he does this. He starts by commending them, and then he moves to addressing them. How does he do it? Verse 22, look. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Okay, that's the commending. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. That's the addressing. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. He commends them for being religious, and he kind of sets it up like, I see you're religious. And they're kind of like, we are religious. But then he addresses them for having an altar that you don't even understand who it's to. It, it has literally no purpose. The origin of this altar to an unknown God, it's debated because the people in Athens at this time, they would sacrifice to a myriad of gods. They would worship and call everything a god that they could possibly think of. But the argument, one of the arguments here for this altar is that the Greek philosophers, philosopher Epimenides, he told the people to do this. I want you to take a flock of sheep, send them out there at Areopagus, and wherever they then laid down, I want you to make an altar to whatever god you might have missed. So they did. <laughs> Supposedly that's like the legend. They sent the sheep out, the sheep laid there, and they're like, well, we don't know what god we missed. So they made an altar to an unknown god, just in case they missed one. Dear Gus. So as Paul begins to address their confusion, remember? He commends, but then he addresses. He wants to now bring the truth. So as he begins to address their confusion, he has to bring the truth of God's word. But he's going to do it in a way that's very unique. He's going to come and speak to the thinking of the um, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. How do these philosophers specifically think? He leaned in to the Epicurean idea, remember, that gods, they are kind of removed from mortals, Either Epicureans don't even believe that there are gods, or they're so far removed from humans and mortals that it just doesn't matter. And look how he spends their way of thinking. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by, here it goes, human hands. So he's showing, yes, Epicureans, you are right. This God is removed from, from the mortals and humanity. He is. He don't come from things built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands. So yeah, Epicureans, you're right. As if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everything life and breath and everything else. So it's very unique how he taps into their way of thinking in order to be able to bring forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. He also does it with the Stoics. Because remember, the Stoics believe that the world is divine, that everything is, is divine here. And he draws on this to make a point of this. Remember, we just read it. He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Not He's saying it's not that the world is divine, but the maker is divine. And that maker is so divine and so such a powerful being, the creator of not only the universe, but to us even, his creation. He gives life and breath and everything else. He continues in verse 26. From one man, this is Adam, he made all of the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. 
So God made a land and he created up cities and boundaries and set it all up and said, you guys are going to go here and you're going to go there and Israelites, you're going to promised land and you're going to conquer Jericho and take this, you're going to take that, right? He set up, but also he even set up our appointed time in history that each one of us would come, that right now we are living in 2023. Not everybody got to do that. Just like we didn't get to live in the origin of all of this taking place. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Paul just doesn't want to prove that some big man in the sky created us and that he's separated from us. He wants to bring it now home that he's not separate, but he actually, without saying it, he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to live among us, take on skin as God and show how God would live among humanity. Humanity never created him. It's not something by our hands that took place. But he actually, the hands of God, came in flesh and as a carpenter built among us and showed us what it was like to live and be human. And I love what he says here. He, he, he leans into this intimacy. That, Listen, I'm not far from you. If you would just seek me, you'll find me. If you would just reach out for me, you'll be able to grab a hold of me. Paul's apologetics approach with these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers is mind-boggling. You can't address, commend, and address the same people, sorry, different people in the same way. The way you can do it with this person, you can't do it with this person. The way you can do it with that person, you can't do it with that person. You have to know how to address people. And his apologetics, right, apologetics to defend the faith, it's just incredible. Verse 28 really catches me, though. It says, for in him, and this is straight apologetics genius right here, for in him, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Why are there quotation marks on this verse? You notice how it quotes those two phrases that he gives? It's because Paul here is quoting famous poets, or I guess in this case, it'd be famous poetic lines from famous philosophers that these people knew very well. When he quoted this stuff, they're like, oh my goodness right now. I, he's quoting him and he's quoting him. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna break down who he's talking about exactly. For in him, we live and move and have our being. Um, that was from the Cretan philosopher that I already talked about earlier, Epimenides. Remember, he's the one that proposed, send the sheep out wherever they sit, make an altar to whatever God you might have missed, unknown God, that's him. So he's quoting somebody that they knew very well. We are his offspring was the other uh, like poetic line he gives here. That's from the Cilician Stoic philosopher, um, um, Eratus. And so that was one that the Stoics knew well. The other one, the Epicureans knew well. They all knew these philosophers. They knew these poetic lines. They had them memorized. They discussed them. They used them in their daily rhetoric, right? Both of these philosophers were so well known. And Paul uses these guys that are deeply respected by them to get their attention so he can address a deeper need, to get their attention, to put it on Jesus. Uh, I love what the British, British theologian Michael Green said. He said, in apologetics, you can exercise no leverage unless you use an authority your opponent recognizes. What does that mean? They ain't gonna listen to what you have to say unless you say something that's gonna grasp their attention, something they understand, something that gains their respect, something that is well known enough to them. So he leverages these other philosophers 
to point to the highest mind ever. See, so philosophy is all about having high thinking and, and being the greatest of, of minds. But he points to the greatest of all, quote unquote, philosophers, right? And Isaiah, it says that his thoughts, his ways, everything about him is above ours. He's like, listen, I'm going to leverage these, these lowly philosophers to point to the greatest mind of all time, God himself. I outlined so much more about Paul's debate in the message, The Unknown God, uh, where you know Paul discusses resurrection, he discusses repentance, judgment, a lot of good stuff. But let me just close out this extension uh, with just the last number of verses here in chapter 17 that I think are just really profound. Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Remember, there are Areopagus. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. I'm going to give you just three takeaways as we close this out in this chapter. Number one, how amazing is it that Dionysius, who was a member of Areopagus, believed. Like he gathered every day as a philosopher and talked about all the other gods. He was there discussing these, these ancient philosophers and, and, and the unknown altar and the idols. And they, and they were like so consumed by all this stuff. And they would meet there at this, this huge rock area, you know, right, where they could see the temple and they could they, they, they could look out and see, you know, where the high court was and he would, they would gather there for, I don't know, it could be the, where they, other crimes and murders and stuff took place. And like, he's there. He's a part of all of it. But because of Paul's apologetics approach being such money, he becomes a believer. Oh, dude, so dope. So you know what just happened? Because Paul, Paul's a great thinker. Paul is a very educated, well, was, he's with Jesus now, but very educated Pharisee in the law, which means he was a high thinker. You know what just happened? We just stacked a philosopher, Dionysius, another high thinker on team Jesus that would be able now to debate and reach the minds of people. So incredible. Number one. Number two, I want you to notice the intentionality of Luke's writings, that he mentions Damaris in this verse. It could just seem like not a big deal that he mentions a woman, but it was a very big deal because that just is not what you did in that culture. Women were always just kind of second. But it's so cool that he adds them here because he's making the point, listen, your color don't matter, Jew or Gentile don't matter, man or woman don't matter, don't matter where you come from, don't matter your background, it matters whether or not you call on Jesus. And if you become a believer in Jesus, that's all that matters. So he mentions her name here. He could have easily just gone, uh, yeah, and so uh, Dionysius and... Uh, the rest of them, but he intentionally adds Damaris because he wants us to see that Jesus is for everyone. Lastly, number three, speaking of following Jesus, speaking of Jesus being for everyone. Verse 34 could be confusing maybe for some of you because it says, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Whoa, is, is, is Paul starting a cult here? Is it an uprising? I thought we were supposed to make followers of Jesus. It says here, followers of Paul and believed. See, Paul really understood very well that discipleship's a journey. The first step he had to do was commend them. 
help them understand, I get you. Speak to your intellect, your way of thinking. Second step was I have to address you. I have to help you see that there are some things that are out of order. Unknown God, like worshiping a God made by human hands? No. We should worship the God that by his hands created us. Then he has to get them to understand who is this God. And then he has to get them to understand that Jesus is the son of God. Then he has to get them to understand, you know what I mean? It's like step by step by step. He understands that discipleship's a journey. And so he just wanted to bring them into the first step. The next step is going to be to help them fully point to and understand Jesus. The next step then, fully understand the power of the Holy Spirit and the authority he gives us, right? There's so much here. And I think it's important for us to understand that one step with people is just towards Jesus is a great step. Everything we're doing has to bring people towards Jesus. Jesus is not just uh, a great possibility to get to God, a, a great choice or option. Jesus is the only option. He's the only possibility. He's the only choice that brings you to the Father. But sometimes with people, we have to understand with discipleship, it's going to be a journey. It's going to be just step one. So in this case, he understood that the next step was going to be able to begin to unpack the fullness of Jesus, which is why you can see in each city, as people begin to believe, you can see them mentioned in other chapters as joining with Paul, which means what? They believed, but it's a journey. And I think Paul understood this, and we need to understand that many times people will follow us before they follow Jesus. People might follow you because they like your social media account or they'll, they'll follow, I don't know, like you in terms of they think they they think what you wear is cool or that, you know, what you know about sports, how you play sports or video games. People might be more into you before they're ever going to be just simply overnight into Jesus. So we have to understand what the Apostle Paul wrote later. As he continues his trip, he goes from Acts 17 to Acts 18. He comes to Corinth. Later, he writes the Corinthian church. He writes First and Second Corinthians. And I think this is so applicable as the tactic we here see at the end of Acts 17 when he's with the Athenians. What does he say to the church at Corinth? First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. He tells them, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. What does that mean? Before people are going to follow Jesus, it's probably going to start by just following us. We have to make sure that us translates to Jesus. I think it's just so important that we understand the influence that we can have. That it says here that some of them followed Paul and believed that there's something about becoming a follower of Paul and Paul understands responsibility now to help make people be followers of Jesus. You have to understand that as people maybe are following what you're doing, you have to take very seriously that you have the opportunity to help people point to now following Jesus and what he's all about. Paul told them, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's a high responsibility as a follower of Jesus. Our job is to follow Jesus. And then in that, we lead others to follow Jesus. It's a great high responsibility. I just want to encourage you today. God's given you influence. I don't know exactly where you're from. I don't know exactly what you're going through. I don't know exactly every day, every option that you have to execute that influence, but I want you to know you have it and it's for God's glory. And he wants you to use it in a way that you can lead others to follow. It's a very important principle. 
Let's pray and let's get in our spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for pointing to your son Jesus and Jesus pointing us to the Holy Spirit. There's a sort of a train here, a following that we can see even in the Trinity of God. And in that then, Holy Spirit, you then point to Jesus and Jesus, you point back to the Father. So it's so interesting, Father, that you gave us Jesus and Jesus, you left so that you could give us the Spirit. But Holy Spirit, you point to Jesus and Jesus, you point to the Father. This is the call in our lives to be led by the Holy Spirit, to not only ourselves point to Jesus, but to lead others to follow Jesus. Because we know, Jesus, that you are pointing to the Father, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through you. I pray that you would equip us with every good work, equip us with, with noble minds like the Bereans, equip us with apologetics like Paul had at Areopagus to go right there with the Epicurean Stoic philosophers, that whether we're at work or in school or at home or uh, random places or sports teams, you know, marketplace, wherever it is that where we meet people. And sometimes the approach that worked with one person won't work with the next. I pray that we'd be led by your spirit and listen to what people are saying so we can learn and know how to respond. Questions first, statements later. Same creator, different savior. We are all created by you. But Lord, not everybody has called you Savior yet. So I ask that as you'd help us to ask good questions, to lean in, to have knowledge, that when we speak and give answers and statements, it would be in a way that approaches people's minds and thinking. Maybe it's with sports and analogies like that. Maybe it's with music or lyrics like that or, or whatever it is, but that we would really be able to lean in in a way with people that would really help them understand Jesus, that they might follow us, before they follow Jesus, but it's our job to help them follow Jesus. It's not on you. That's on us. It's our job. We take that right now seriously that God, as people are following and watching and examining what we're doing, we want to help them watch you, Jesus. We love you. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. I love y'all.